Yeah, amen. Thank you. Be seated as you're doing so. I want to ask you to see if you can identify a theme park that was opened on October the 1st, 1971. This theme park is known for its cleanliness, for its guest service, and for its fairy tale experiences. For the last two decades, it has been the most often visited theme park in North America, but it's also been the most visited theme park in all of the world. Can anyone guess what theme park I'm talking about? The Magic Kingdom, and some of y'all are just shaking because it's your favorite place in the world. Well, for the next few moments, I'm going to talk to you about a kingdom, but when I say the word kingdom, I'm going to ask you to do the best you can to not think about the Magic Kingdom. Unlike the Magic Kingdom, this kingdom is not a make-believe kingdom. It's a real kingdom. Unlike the Magic Kingdom, this kingdom is not one that is going to decay or to rot away as much as they do to protect and to preserve this one. The Magic Kingdom will one day end, but this kingdom is present today and will last for all of eternity. The kingdom I want to talk to you about this morning is not Mickey's kingdom, but it is the King's kingdom. So if you will take your Bibles with me this morning, let's turn to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. And I want to talk to you about the King and his kingdom. Our theme this year for 2018 is simply unashamed, right? And what is the key word that we're drawing out of that theme? It's the word me, right? Me. I am unashamed. Our theme is birthed out of our theme passage, which is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. I am so appreciative. I am so blessed by those of you that have been so courageous to memorize that along with me, but also being willing to share that here in our worship times together. People ask me all the time, well, pastor, do you prep them? Absolutely, I do not. I just simply ask, who's got it? Who's ready? And so some of you sit back and you're like, well, I just can't memorize and I can't do. Let me see if this three and a half year old that's in our church might possibly motivate you to see if you might be able to memorize our theme passage. Listen to Josie as she shares it with us. Yeah. 
Mic drop right there, right? Boom, that's done. So that's, uh, that's Josie. That's uh, Travis and Tara Miller's daughter. And uh, what a great job. Tara shared that with us a few weeks ago, and she's working with Josie. Let me just encourage you. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter what your limited abilities might be. Systematically putting on God's Word, studying it, you'll be able to put it together. The series of messages that we're in right now is, uh, uh, is a series I'm entitled Identity Crisis, and it's burned... Excuse me, it's birthed out of this theme passage, but especially that passage there in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, where it says, But sanctify yourself, always being ready to make an account or to give an account to everyone that should ask you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. Well, what am I to give an account for? The hope that is in you, this, this understanding that there is this kingdom that is out there. This is there's this eternal life. There's this, there's this eternity, and it's a hope that is in me, and I can speak to you, and I can talk to you about it. And that's what the identity crisis is all about. What do I believe? Why do I believe it? And how can I share that with others? But why is that important? Why should I care about knowing what I believe? Why should I care about what I believe? Why should I care about being able to describe it to others? And the answer is very simple. is because there is a kingdom It's not a make-believe kingdom, and it's not a kingdom that will eventually rot away. It is an eternal kingdom, and it's a real kingdom. And if you're a Christian today, you're a member, you're a citizen, you're, you're part of that kingdom. You, you were entered into, you became part of that kingdom at the moment of your salvation. And if people don't understand about this kingdom, if they don't understand how to have a relationship with the king of this kingdom, then this real place, this kingdom is not what they're going to experience. What they're going to experience is another real place, and that's called the place of hell, a literal place. And so it's very important for us to understand this kingdom and what it means and how to talk about it and how to do that with gentleness and reverence so that we can introduce others into the opportunity to be able to experience the kingdom rather than eternal separation and hell. And so we're using our Baptist faith and message to kind of jumpstart us into each one of these uh, sermons that I'm sharing with you on Sunday morning. And so the, when it comes to the kingdom, this is what our Baptist faith and message says. It says the kingdom of God includes both his general sovereignty and over the universe and his particular kingship over men or women who willfully acknowledge him as king. Particularly, the kingdom is the realm of salvation into which men enter by trustful childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. Christians ought to pray and to labor that the kingdom may come and God's will be done on earth. Now the full consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of Jesus Christ and the end of the age. Now in light of what I've just shared with you and in light of of everything that we've been talking about up to this point, I want you to listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness And all these things will be added to you. This passage of scripture is located in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Some people believe that the Sermon on the Mount was really a compilation of all the sermons that Jesus preached during his earthly ministries. Others would say, no, this is the first sermon that he ever preached. And he was announcing himself as the Messiah, the one that had come. And he was, he was announcing what the kingdom of God would be about. I'm not going to split hairs over that this morning. That's not really what is important. But what is important is that we find snippets of this located not only in Matthew, but we find it in Mark and Luke as well. Matthew, Mark, and Luke comprise what we call the synoptic gospels. 
It's the three gospels that write many times about the same events, but they write it from their angle. They write it from their perception of what they saw when these things were taking place. And listen to what Mark's summary is about what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. It's found uh, in the Mount, and it's found in Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 1. He says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Luke's account, he says, Jesus said this. Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. In this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us a lot of things. For instance, he taught us how to pray. Matthew chapter 6, he says, pray this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the upper room at the Last Supper, as Jesus is dialoguing with his disciples before he goes to the cross, Jesus says this in Mark 14. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Can anyone possibly guess what you think the last subject matter was that Jesus spoke about before his ascension back into heaven? It's found in Acts chapter 1. He also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. If you were to take all of Jesus' teachings and put them all together, you would see that they centered around the kingdom of God. 61 times the kingdom of God is used in the synoptic gospels, 85 times it's used in the totality of the New Testament. And if you were to study all of those 85 times that Jesus speaks specifically about the kingdom of God, here are the two things that you would notice. The first thing you would notice is that the kingdom of God is in the future. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 2, Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So we know beyond a shadow of doubt that the kingdom is in the future, but what you would also notice in studying those passages is that the kingdom of God is present today. In Luke chapter 17, now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he, Jesus, answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, The kingdom of God is in your midst. So if you're a Christian today and you have a relationship with the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the king of the kingdom, that means you're looking forward to the day that you will be in the kingdom for all of eternity. But the fact of the matter is, is that you're already in the kingdom and you're living in the kingdom today. What that literally means is that Jesus Christ is your king You are the subject. You are under the rulership. You are under the sovereignty of this King Jesus because you are a subject in his kingdom. And I want you to understand this morning that there are some responsibilities that come with that. This morning, I want to share two of those with you. It's not an exhaustive list. There's much more that we're responsible for as subjects in the kingdom of God. But there's two specific responsibilities that I see here in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 that I want to share with you that you are responsible for. I am responsible for. Remember, I'm speaking to Christians this morning. If you're not saved, you're of a different kingdom. But those of us that have a relationship with Christ, we're of the kingdom of heaven. And as such, we have a responsibility to the king and his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things are going to be added 
to you. So in that, here's the first responsibility that I notice in that passage of Scripture. Responsibility number one. I must seek after the king and his kingdom. I must seek after the king and his kingdom. If you were to take the Greek manuscript, the Greek text of which has been translated into English for us to be able to read and understand, you would find that the word kingdom that's translated for us is the word basileia. That, that's the Greek word meaning kingdom. But this word is very unique in the fact that it's not speaking about a certain territory. It's not speaking about a certain location. And that's what we have to understand. Yes, there is a day coming that we will be in the location of the kingdom of heaven. But what it's talking about in this passage of scripture is the kingdom of heaven is here. And as subjects to the king, we are in that. And that we know that because of what this word says. You might be sitting here this morning and say, well, pastor, how are you confident about that? I got to tell you, I don't do very good with technology these days. I, I try to Twitter, tweet and I try to, I try to Facebook and all those things. And I just get sick and tired of it after a period of time. Um, I get tired of my kids staring at the screens of their phones and, and finding time to waste time. I, 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 I struggle with it. But yet on the same token, technology is so great for us when it comes to Bible study. You see, when the original manuscripts were, were written and then they were passed along, you, you come into the, you know, the 16th, 17th, 18th century and we're trying to translate these Greek texts into English and we're doing the best we can to understand what a word like basileia would mean when it says the kingdom. And now we sit in this day where through archaeological discoveries and the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have found more and more and more manuscripts closer to the time of the writing that really took place. And in addition to that, we have books of antiquity or we have books that were written during the same period of time that our Bible was written. And with these microprocessors, we're able to go not only into the biblical text, but also into the extra biblical text, to the secular text. And we're able to take a word and say, show us how this word was used in that day. What was the vernacular in that day? Today, when we use the word gay, it's much different than they used the word gay in the 1600 in the translation of the King James Version. So they take these words and they, they put it into these microprocessors and it finds every time that word is used in all of this literature and it gives us an expanded understanding of this word. And from that, we understand that this word is talking about the sphere of influence of the king. That's what basileia means. It's, it's the sphere. It's the totality of the influence that the king has. Early in my ministry, I had the privilege to be, be mentored and tutored by not only my dad, but by Lena's dad as well. Both preached over 50 years, and, and uh, it, it's always a blessing in times like this when we go through uh, maybe the loss of a loved one. You spend time of reflecting. Um, it's kind of ironic that uh, my mom's funeral was on uh, May the 5th, uh, 2007, the Sunday before uh, the Saturday, a week before we moved into this facility, and then Lena's mom passed away on the same day. And you kind of get to thinking about those things. That Lena's daddy passed away a couple of years before my mom, and, 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 and he taught me about this idea of the sphere of influence of the king. I want you to listen very carefully to what Brother Billy taught me, and maybe it'll be a blessing to you. He said, in all actuality, the heart is your throne, when you think about a throne, you think about where the king sits. He says, that is your heart. And before salvation, you think that you're sitting on your throne. You think that you're the one that's in control. But in all actuality, Satan's the one that's in control. 
He's the one that's sitting on the throne of your heart. He's the one that has caused sin to enter into the world. And as a result of that, he's sitting there and you will forever be separated from God. And there's nothing in and of yourself that you can do to remove Satan off of that throne. Pastor, wait a minute. I'm a good person. Wait a minute. I, I try to do right things. I, I try to. It doesn't matter. You're dead in your trespasses and sin and Satan sits upon that throne, which means you are part of the kingdom of Satan, not the kingdom of God. And if you die in trespasses and sin, you go to that literal place called hell. But at the moment of your salvation, Jesus Christ takes his rightful place on that throne. And he's seated there forever and ever. We believe in the eternal security of the believer. There's nothing that we can do that can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing that we can do to cause Jesus to be off of the throne. But at the same time, Jesus does not battle with us for the supremacy of our throne. He's always seated there. He's always the one that's in control. But if you choose not to follow his leadership, his sovereignty in your life, then you can expect to deal with the consequences of doing that. It will not affect your eternal destiny, but it will affect the way that you function and fulfill what you are supposed to be doing as a subject of the kingdom. And this is one of the things Brother Billy taught me. He said, do you know the happiest subjects In the kingdom, he said, it's those that are willing to follow the king's leadership. When they come to the point of realizing that this king is for me, this king isn't against me, this king has has done everything necessary to bring me into a relationship with him. Why would I not want to subjugate myself to his leadership? Why would I not want to trust him? He didn't have to leave heaven. He didn't have to come to this earth and to die for me. But he chose to do that. Obviously, he loves me with a love that I can't understand. Why would I not come underneath his leadership and not only keep him, because he always is going to be on the throne as my Savior, why do I not allow him to be the ultimate sovereign of my life and simply follow what it is that he asks me to do? And that's, in essence, what Jesus is saying in this passage of Scripture this morning. He says, I want my basilea, I want my kingdom, I want my sphere of influence to be what you operate by. And this is the way that you need to do that. Seek first the kingdom of God. That word seek that we find in this passage of Scripture, it's in the present tense. In other words, when we're saved and we ask Jesus to save us, that's not where it stops. We don't just say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I'm destined for hell. And I know you're the only way to eternal life. Come into my life. Save me. Sit on my throne. But that's all that I want for you. No. Jesus says, no, you are to be presently, continually, present tense, seeking after the sphere of influence of the king in your life. And how do we know that it's definitely present tense? Is because he says, seek what? Excuse me? Seek first. In other words, the king is to have top priority in your life. The only way that the sphere of influence will be what it's supposed to be is when you put him at top priority in our life. So we talk about things like, well, in our marriage, who's supposed to have top priority? God is. Then my spouse. 
In my family, who's supposed to have top priority in my family? God is, then my spouse, then my children. In my finances, who are supposed to have top priority? God is, because in everything that I do, his sphere of influence is to be prevalent because I am to present tensely be actively pursuing after the sphere of influence of the king in my life. In essence, I'm to remove myself for fighting over or from striving with God as to how I am to live my life. The king and his kingdom, they must have top priority. This is what Jesus is teaching us as his subjects. That's a responsibility that we have. I must seek after the king and his kingdom. That's the first responsibility I see in this passage. The second responsibility that I see in this passage is I have to seek after his righteousness. I seek after the king and his kingdom. I I seek after his sphere of influence. But how is that manifested? It's manifested when I seek after his righteousness, not for salvation. I can't do anything for salvation. I'm drawn into a relationship with him to be saved. But once I am saved and once I am part of the kingdom, then I am to be seeking after the righteousness of the king and his kingdom. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, I'm to be actively pursuing God's total sovereign lordship over my life. And to actively see the character within me begin to change. I want you to listen to that again. Seeking after the righteousness of God, seeking after the righteousness of a king, means that I will be actively seeking after an inward transformation of who I am. That inward transformation of who I am then begins to express itself on the outward manifestation of who I am. You see, until I seek after the king, king, until I seek after his righteousness, and he begins to change me on the inside, my language will not change on the outside. It's called those slips up. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. No, you did because that's what's on the inside. Until the inward transformation happens, the outward transformation will not show. Until that happens, it's just words. Oh, I'm a Christian. I just talk the way that I do. Oh, I'm a Christian. I just don't care about the things of God. Oh, oh, I'm saved. Jesus is on my throne. But it doesn't change me on the inside. So therefore, it makes itself not known on the outside. The kingdom of God is not just to be inwardly experienced, but it's to be outwardly expressed. What's our theme verse for this year? 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. What's the, what's the passage we're using to make sure we understand what it means to not have an identity crisis? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And how does it begin? But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Seek after his righteousness. Seek after his righteousness in your relationships. Seek after your righteousness in your job. Seek after his righteousness in your finances. Seek after his righteousness into each and everything that we do. And here's the deal why we have to do that. Before you can ever truly be, you, you may know what you believe and why you believe it. But before you can ever share that with an atheist. Before you can ever share that with an, with an agnostic. But before you can ever share that with an antagonist at work, but before you can ever share that with that family member that you want to reach so that they can have eternal life, 
Yes, we have to know what we believe and why we believe it. What, what are we doing in August, starting in August, right? We're going to start our discipleship training back over on August the 19th. And what's going to be the topic? Apologetics. Some of y'all are so excited about that. I'm finally going to understand my faith. Yes, we want to understand it. what we believe, why we believe it. That's why we're bringing in Jay Warner Wallace, right? The number, one of the number one top apologists in all of the country to be in both of our services on September the 9th. We want to know why we believe it, what we believe, how to talk to others. But listen to me. Listen to me very carefully. You will not be able to speak with an atheist, an agnostic, an antagonist, a family member that's not saved, effectively, until you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. See, up until that moment, it's just words. It's just debate. It's just ideology. Those words have to be filtered through and coming through a life that they see that sanctifies Christ in your heart. It's not just a cerebral understanding. It is a life-altering decision. It's not just fire insurance. It is a commitment that I'm making to live each and every day in the present tense, seeking after God, seeking after his kingdom, seeking after his righteousness, not just for head knowledge, but so there is a transformation that takes place in me. Because if you do not seek first the kingdom of, his God, of, of God and his righteousness, what will begin to happen is you will be armed with information and you will become an antagonist yourself. You'll be good at debating, but you won't be good at loving. You'll be armed with the truth and you can argue with the best of them, with those infidels that are going to hell and they probably need to anyway because of what they believe. But did you know that who I was before I came into Christ? I was an infidel. And I was an enemy of the king and his kingdom. And there has to be this transformation that comes place, that takes place inside of me. And I do that by sanctifying Christ as Lord in my heart. And I'm never going to make a difference in this world until the world sees that my king has made a difference in my life. I will never make a difference in this world until the world sees that this king has made a difference in my life. Some years ago, there was a newspaper in England, and, and, the, and, the, and the editors of that newspaper were so frustrated because their paper kept being sent out day after day after day with errors. Just silly errors, errors that should not be happening. And they couldn't figure out what to do. And so they chastised the typesetters and the errors continued. They, they took away their, their, their pay and they, they continued to make errors. And finally, they came up with this idea. And this is what they told the typesetters. The first edition of every morning's paper is going to be delivered to the king. And almost instantaneously, the mistakes began to end. Can I tell you that each and every morning when you get up, you're delivering yourself to the king? You're saying, King Jesus, scrutinize me. King Jesus, look at me. King Jesus, go through me. See if there's any wicked way in me. See if there's anything that I need to resolve in my life so that I can make a difference in this world because the world sees that you're making a difference in me. Two responsibilities I have as a subject of the king and his kingdom is outlined in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. Responsibility number one, I must seek after the king and his kingdom. 
Responsibility number two, I must seek after the righteousness of the king and his kingdom. But I got to tell you this morning, that's not how most Christians are choosing to live their life. It's not the approach that we have to our relationships. It's not the approach we have to our parenting. It's not the approach that we have to our finances. And as such, a lot of times you can't see much different in the way that people within the church operate and those outside the church operate. I know that, and I've validated by that because of a study that the Barna Research Group did, and this was their finding. They said, we find very, very few instances where Christians look any different from anybody else in their values, attitudes, behaviors, and relationships. They are almost a mirror image of those you find among non-Christians. In other words, as Christians, we're just as ambitious for everything that the world is. We're just as caught up in doing everything that the world says will make us successful and happy. We, we, we say we have this king, we have this kingdom and that, that we're different, but yet everything we do, everything we say, everything that we pursue, everything that we're about, it mirrors exactly the same thing that those who do not know the king pursue. This poll goes on to say Christians do not act differently because they do not think differently. They do not really understand what their faith has to do with every dimension of their lives. How can we not be that kind of Christian? How how can we live our life in such a way that it would never be said of us that we look just like somebody that's of the other kingdom? I want to share two ways, two, two means with you this morning, if you're interested. If you are, you may want to jot these down in the margins of your Bible. You may want to make a note about this. These are two ways, two means by which we can make sure that we are fulfilling these two responsibilities in Matthew six thirty three. Again, not an exhaustive list, but a really good starting place if we want to live for the king and his kingdom. Here's way number one. Stop worrying about the Joneses. Stop worrying about the Joneses. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. So if you, if you go ahead and do that with me. Turn back to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. And you read forward from verse 25 to what we just read in verse 33. What you're going to find is that Jesus is talking about overcoming worry. That's really the thread. That's the theme of, of, of Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through Matthew chapter 6, verse 34. The, the theme is overcoming worry. And what Jesus is teaching us in this passage of Scripture is that worrying about what we have is unnecessary. And do you know why for a Christian worrying about why we have, what we have is unnecessary? Because we know the king that has control of the kingdom in which we are a part of. This is, in essence, what he's trying to get across in this passage. I want to read this for you. It's it's not real long, but it kind of puts things into perspective to help us understand why it is that we don't have to worry about the Joneses. Verse 25 says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. That they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? 
Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all of these things. Your heavenly father knows that you need these things. So here's what you do. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first the king and his kingdom. Seek first the righteousness of the king and the kingdom. And now what's going to happen about the clothing? What's going to happen about the food? What's going to happen about the cars? What's going to happen about the home? What's going to happen about the education? What's going to happen about the retirement? When you worry about seeking after the king and his kingdom and you worry about seeking after the righteousness of the king and the kingdom, what's going to happen? And all these things will be added Unto you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself because the king is taking care of it. Each day has enough trouble of his own. Some of you are so worried about where you, what you drive, so worried about what you wear. So worried about the neighborhood in which you live. You're so worried about your financial portfolio. You you can't tithe. You, You can't give Division 2020 because you're so worried about what the world says you have to have in order to be successful. As a result of that, you're you're just simply nominal Christians. You live in guilt every Sunday. You love to come because you love the expounding of God's word, but yet you sit here and you're like, "Oh my gosh." This is just so painful. I mean, I have people leave all the time. They're like, I can't go back to that church. I want one of those churches that make you feel good when you leave. Then seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and you will feel great. You'll feel wonderful. Nominal Christianity is the result of us seeking after the wrong kingdom and not after the kingdom of God. And Jesus says in this passage of scripture, if you'll put me in the right place in your life and stop worrying about keeping up with the Joneses and worrying about keeping up with me, I will take care of those needs that you have in your life. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The first way and means to live for the king and his kingdom is stop worrying about the Joneses. Here's the second way and means. Start working for the Joneses. Pastor, what are you saying? Give up my job, go find a CEO, go find a business owner by the name of Jones, start working. What are you saying from there? No, follow me. Do you remember the question I asked you at the beginning of the sermon that when I said, can you guess the last subject Jesus spoke about before he ascended into heaven? Does anybody remember me asking that question at the beginning? Okay. You remember what the answer was? Acts chapter one, verse three, right? He also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And right after he makes this statement, he says this in verse 8. And be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. In other words, if you, if you truly want to live as a subject of the king and his kingdom, if you really want to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, you have to stop worrying about the Joneses and what they have and you don't have and how to emulate them because you want to be like them. You've got to stop worrying about the Joneses and you've got to start working for the Joneses and finding out whether or not they're part of the real kingdom or whether they're part of that real hell. When their life comes to the end, are they going to be living in eternity with Christ? Are they going to be living in eternity forever separated? And you've got to be working to do everything that you can to expose them to the truth of the king and his kingdom. And that's what kindness culture is all about. Kindness culture is simply showing the love of Jesus in a practical way so that when we cross paths with the Joneses, when we, when we cross paths with those at the grocery store, we, we cross paths with those at, at Orwall, or we, we, we cross paths with those at the golf course, or we, we cross paths with those in the cubicle next to us. When we, when we cross passes, or we cross paths with the Joneses, we'll act differently and we'll, we'll show that we think differently because we're part of the, the kingdom of the king and not the kingdom of Satan. And you know what begins to happen when you begin to look at people like that? They stop being your enemy, someone to conquer in the workplace. They stop being that grumpy neighbor that you want to make sure and avoid at the mailbox. They stop being that heretic that deserves hell because of what they believe and what they stand for. And these Joneses that we cross paths with each and every day, we begin to realize that that's a living soul. And that living soul is going to spend all of eternity either in the kingdom or in hell. So when you walked in this morning, you may have seen something a little bit different. You may have seen a, a different logo, a different look. We're about to launch the next step in kindness culture in the life of our church. I know what some of y'all were thinking several years ago when we introduced this. Well, this is just a fad. This is just a program. Pastor will get over that. They'll stop doing that Saturday morning thing. Uh-uh. I told you it's the new DNA of Oak Ridge Baptist Church. Today, we're stepping into the next chapter of kindness culture because we believe not only is the kingdom of God in eternity, but the kingdom of God is here right now and we're living in it. And we're to be sharing the love of Jesus in a practical way. And what kindness culture helps us do, it helps us get in the habit of crossing paths with Joneses and being aware that they're a living soul. And being aware of the fact that they're going to spend eternity either with the king or in hell. And it's this idea of, of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10 where Jesus says, here's what you're to pray. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Well, what's Jesus's will? You are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. You may or may not be able to see what I have in my hand right now, but I have a $2 bill. Reach into your billfold and pull out your $2 bill, please. Anybody? Keith, you got a $2 bill? Okay, hold on to it. You're good. Anybody else? 
You got one? No, Mary Lee, I know why you got one. We don't, we don't walk around with $2 bills in our pocket very much anymore, do we? Lena has one folded up in her purse, in her billfold, and it's one her daddy gave her. You, you can't arm wrestle her for that one. You can't fight her for that one. That's the one her daddy gave her, and it's her special keepsake of a memory that she has. So every now and then I'll get lucky and I'll find a $2 bill and I'll, I'll make a little note or I'll send her a card and I'll stick a $2 bill in there. A few weeks back she was at Sam's and she was in line and, and uh, she was listening to a mom and a, and a kiddo behind her realizing they didn't have enough money to buy a piece of pizza and a Slurpee or a, what do they call them now? Icy at Sam's. And Lena kind of was rummaging around in her purse trying to find something, you know, that she could give to them. And she found one of our kindness culture cards, so she knew she had that. And, 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 and all she could find was her daddy's $2 bill. And then she remembered in the other pocket was one of the ones I gave her. Guess one, which one she gave up. <laughs> she got that other $2 bill and she turned around to that mom and said, could I show you the love of Jesus in a practical way? And she handed her that card and that $2 bill. And it caught the lady by surprise. She's like, I don't know that I, is that real money? She's kind of looking at it. She goes, that has to be something special. And she said, well, it is. It always gives me a memory of my dad. My dad was a Baptist pastor. He loved Jesus. And Jesus loves you. Have a great day. She said the lady just stood there flabbergasted. She didn't know what to say. She didn't know whether to spend the money or hold on to the money until the kids started crying loud enough. And it was like, yeah, I'm going to spend the money, right? And then we got to thinking. What if we begin to see $2 bills showing up in our community? What if our members that bought into the fact that we're to show the love of Jesus in a practical way because the kingdom of God is not just in the future, but it's here today. And we took the opportunity of just sharing a $2 bill to show the love of Jesus in a practical way. And our kids went to, went, went to school and they, they paid for their lunch and somehow they got given back chains and it had a $2 bill in it. We, we go to Kroger and they count back our chains and they're like, I got one of these $2 bills, you want that? And $2 bills begin to show up in laundromats and they begin to show up in gas stations and they begin to show up in grocery stores and they begin to show up in... our community. And that $2 bill began to start representing there's a church in this community that's about the kingdom. Some of you get it. For those of you who get it, when we're dismissed here today, our mission team is going to be located at each one of these tables and they've got you a $2 bill. They've got you a card that's got our new logo and our new approach. 
for you to take with you. And if you're going to take it and stick it in your pocket, leave it alone. If two, three weeks from now you still got it, don't take it. But if you realize that it's about the king and his kingdom, and you're willing to cross paths with Joneses, and to say, I want you to know that Jesus loves you in a practical way. When you leave here today, you go get your card and a $2 bill. And I can't wait to hear your stories. Several years ago, I had the privilege to be able to go to London, to England, to do some work for our association. It ended up a few years, we did some mission work over there as a church. Each time we'd make a trip to Buckingham Palace, when I went there, and when I got to Buckingham Palace, I'd always look for the flagpole. Kind of sounds strange. Why would I look for the flagpole? Centuries ago, when the king was in the castle, when the king was on his throne, they would raise the king's flag to the top of the flagpole to let you know the sovereign was at home. That tradition continues today. When the queen mother is in residence at Buckingham Palace, look for the flagpole and her colors will be flying. Each and every one of us have a flagpole in our heart. There's only two flags that are flying from that pole. One is the flag of Satan and one is the flag of Jesus. For those of you here this morning and your flag is that of Satan and his kingdom, the reason that you have that flag is because you were born. The Bible tells us, Wherefore, as through one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed to all, for all have sinned. There's none righteous, no, not one. You're not a bad person. You're not a horrible person. You're a sinner, just like I'm a sinner. Because of Satan and original sin. And the Bible tells us the only way for you to take that flag down and to put Jesus' flag up is that you have to truly understand who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus chose to come to this earth and become a man by being born of a virgin. And for 33 years, he lived on this earth to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was all man, all God, and sinless. At the end of those 33 years, he voluntarily allowed himself to go to the cross. And on the cross, that's where he took your sin and my sin and all the sin of humanity upon himself so that we could raise a different flag over our heart. The Bible says that the wrath of God fell upon him and it was such a monstrous event that God literally darkened the world so that he did not have to look at your sin and my sin on his son. And on that cross, he bled, he shed his blood in fulfillment of what Hebrews tells us, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And Jesus died on that cross. But the good news is, when they laid him in a borrowed tomb, three days later, he rose again. And in that resurrection, unlike Muhammad, and in that resurrection... Unlike any other religious leader ever to exist, in that resurrection, Jesus Christ proved beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He walked amongst people for 40 days, allowing them to touch him and see that he was physically, bodily resurrected. And the Bible tells us that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. You can switch the flag over your heart. That's what you need to do today. For others of you, the flag of Jesus flies over your heart, but you're constantly struggling. Not to keep the flag there because God will not allow you to take that flag down. But to keep flying your attitude and keep flying your words and keep flying your relationships and keep flying everything that you do to rightly reflect the king and his kingdom. And in this passage this morning, Jesus says you don't have to fight it. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. And there will be a peace that will come to you. There will be a joy that comes to you. There will be a fulfillment that will come to you. Because you're seeking the king and his kingdom. And you're seeking after the righteousness of that king and his kingdom. So in a few moments we're going to be dismissed. And as we're exiting, that's where we give our tithes and our offerings and our gifts to Vision 2020. But before we do that, we always like to have a time of worship. Time of worship for, for those of you that are in the right spot, in a good place. There's, there's things that are solid for you in your walk with God. Then you, you worship and enjoy that time. For others of us that maybe there's something we need to deal with that gives us a moment to pause and to reflect and to take action on what God's asked us to do today. If you're this morning, you're not saved, you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'm going to be right down here. I would love to have the opportunity to share with you what it means to be saved. If you need to come pray, you come pray. For some of you, what you need to do, your, your response this morning is to go ahead and go to these tables. And to go ahead and get your $2 bill, get your kindness culture card, and come pray that when you cross paths with the Jones that you'll have the courage and the strength and the willingness to show the love of Jesus in a practical way. So I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And when I say amen, you stand to your feet and I just implore you to do what God's asking you to do today. Father, we come to you right now and we're so grateful that you give us these opportunities to evaluate and to understand and to, to grasp and to grow. But Father, you also give us the opportunities to not just be hearers of the word, but doers. And I pray that your perfect will would be done in each and every life here today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.